Okay, so next we have a treat. We're going to hear from Charles Park. He's going to be continuing our series, and he's going to be talking today about faith and reason. Please welcome Charles. Thank you, Sarah. Well, welcome to the river. It's good to see you on this cold. <laughs> the seasons have turned. Yes, you like the fall? It feels more like winter than fall. Very fast turning. I don't like that, but oh well. We'll see how it goes. All right, we are in a sermon series called How Faith Can Make Life Better to talk about practical ways that faith actually makes life better. I mean, that's why we are here, right? We believe faith can make life better. So we want to talk about different ways it can happen. And today I'd like to talk about faith and reason because faith has a reputation for being an enemy of reason, right? You've kind of heard that, right? Or seen that, that the faith sometimes, and I admit it's a well-earned reputation, faith can sometimes can get weird and uh, makes reason go out the window. It does have that reputation, but Today, I want to say that that's not what faith that Jesus offers does. Uh, God gave us reason. God wants us to use reason. The greatest commandment says, part of it says, Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Right? So mind and reason is a big part of faith. It's supposed to be used to love God, to have faith. So I believe faith can actually help us to use reason better by countering our biases, our prejudices, help us think clearly with flexibility and conviction and humility and open-mindedness. That's what we want to do, right, with reason? And I believe faith can do that for us. That's what I want to talk about today. Uh, because I feel in today's divided, polarized environment, it's more important than ever that we use reason well, right? People seem so divided, right? Fox versus MSNBC, Republican versus Democrats. Uh, I'm not the only one who sees that, right? P- each pe- people just seem so dug in so divided into each camp, and there's no reasoning. It's just all arguing, right? Each camp feels they are so right. They are so sure they are absolutely right, so why talk and reason it out? Uh, Brain scientists actually tell us that this is not surprising. Our brains have evolved in such a way Now, we tend to use reason to justify our conclusions more than using reason to come to conclusions. It's a very interesting point that we tend to use reason not to come to some logical conclusions. We already have conclusions and we we use reason to just fortify what we already believe. Now, that's how our brain is wired. 
And I believe that is the biggest obstacle to use reason well. Right? If we are just using reason to come to, to fortify our conclusions, then that's, that's not good. Reason's not going to be used well. And so today I'd like to talk about how not to fall into that trap, how faith in Jesus actually helps us to counter that tendency. Sounds good? Okay. I want to start today with a passage that shows us two different approaches to faith. One is a friend of reason, and the other, not so much. It's from the book of Mark in the New Testament Bible. One Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Uh, the law here is spiritual law, the biblical law. Uh, it's not the civil law. Okay? They're talking about breaking the Bible. Jesus said to them, Haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abiathar was high priest and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Because healing was considered work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So that's what they wanted to see what Jesus would do. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled head, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Obviously, <laughs> save life and do good, right? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Because plotting to kill is technically not breaking the Sabbath. They're just talking, you know, right? So on Sabbath, you can plot to kill, but don't you heal, right? And you think, what happened to reason, <laughs> Right? This is an example of, uh, of reason. This is unreasonable behavior. Wouldn't you agree? So let me talk about these Pharisees. You know, they, they, are not, they are not like crazy bad people, as you might assume from reading passages like this. They were the Bible people of their day. They were good people who really cared about their faith, their nation, their God, they wanted to serve the country, they were passionate people. Today's equivalent would be good Bible-believing Christians who genuinely love their country and love their God. And, and they had deep concerns about Jesus because he wasn't strong on the Bible, exemplified by his loosey-goosey stance on the Sabbath. Right? He's kind of like, right? And Sabbath was a big deal for the people of faith back then. It's fourth 
on the list of Ten Commandments. And that list goes in the order of importance. It's a very important commandment. And the people of faith at that time especially felt that Sabbath was important because uh, one of the reasons why the nation of Israel was captured previously by Babylon and Assyria and now, you know, kind of oppressed by the Romans, they believed it was because they didn't keep Sabbath well enough. In Ezekiel chapter 12, in the, chapter 20 in the Bible, it says that the nation of Israel was sold into captivity because they didn't keep the Sabbath. So the people of faith were traumatized by this and they didn't want to get scattered around the nations again, lose the whole nation again. It kind of looked like it with the Romans kind of breathing down their necks. And so they were very, very, they felt very strongly about Sabbath. About a century before this time, Israeli soldiers at the time of Maccabees, many of them refused to fight on the Sabbath and chose instead to get slaughtered in order not to incur the wrath of God again. It was that important to them. So to the Pharisees at the time, Sabbath was a sacred thing. To break Sabbath would be to betray these martyrs, betray the country, invite the wrath of God again. By insulting God. So to them it wasn't just an issue, issue of defying a silly rule or tradition as it feels to us today. It was very important to them. It was the nation itself, the Bible itself, and the faith itself at stake here. So, they make an alliance with the Herodians. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now these Herodians, they were ruthless people in power who were completely immoral and corrupt. They would not hesitate to murder, defy God, commit every kind of atrocity for pleasure, for power. Uh, anything that they serve their interest, they would do. Just completely immoral people. Got it? So, Pharisees and Herodians were mortal enemies, naturally. They were just completely opposed to each other. Yet against Jesus, they make an alliance. They work together. Why? How could this happen, right? I mean, you'd understand. For the Herodians, it makes sense. It just gives them more power. But for the Pharisees, how could they make such an alliance? I mean, they spent their whole life railing against the immorality of the Herodians. It's hard to believe. Yet, we see that very same thing today. Right? All around us. We see lifelong evangelicals, conservative Christians who spent their whole life railing against immoral people like Trump. Right? I mean, do we have a picture of Trump? We don't? Oh, well. That's too bad. But anyway... Well, you know who I'm talking about. You get a picture of that man. I mean, I mean, I mean, everything that Trump stands for is everything the evangelical Christians have fought against. I know because for much of my life, I was an evangelical. About seven, eight years ago, our church hosted one of the leaders of evangelical community, one of the leading voices. And he and I spent some time walking around the city. And while walking, 
This man, uh, evangelical leader, he saw a poster of Ivanka Trump selling perfume. And he assumed that this was yet another young wife of Trump. Because all he said was Trump at the bottom, right? So he thought, oh, of course, you know, he's yet again. And, you know, he's justified in thinking that. It's just to Trump has married a number of times. And uh, we all know his history. And so he started railing against secular immorality. He just went on for several minutes, quite a while, how people like Trump have no shame, how the secular atheist immoral philosophy is destroying the country with their endless divorces, with their lying, with their lust, their greed, boundless abuses of power for selfish gain, how the country was led astray by New York values exemplified by New Yorkers like Trump. And so I just listened to it. You know, he was just on, you know, he was, he's a preacher. He was going at it. And so I just, I didn't even have time to correct his mistake about Ivanka, that she's actually his daughter. He was just going at it. So, you know, after 10 minutes of it, you were just like, well, you know, he's going at it. Well, things have changed today, haven't they? Surveys say 90% of evangelicals support Trump. It's unprecedented, unprecedented. I mean, evangelicals have never, even George Bush had only about 80% support. And he was one of our own, you know. So this is just absolute full-throated support. And I have to wonder, how is this possible? Right? How can a group of people who have championed all these values like family values, morality, you know, ethical behavior, godliness, how how could they have flipped their position so completely? You know what I mean? How is it possible it's just completely reversed? So I asked my friends about it. I still have lots of friends in the evangelical world. And, and they cringe about Trump. You know, my friends are not loonies. They are good, reasonable people. And they do cringe about Trump. But yet, they still support Trump. And as for the reason, they all say one thing. Abortion. They justify their position with this one issue. Abortion must be stopped. There are so many babies getting murdered. Over half a million, about a little over half a million per year. It must be stopped. So anything, even alliance with Herodians like Trump, it must be swallowed because this must be stopped. A single word can have such great power. I call them red flag words. You know, it's abortion. It's murder. Murder or freedom or Sabbath at the time of Jesus. Such words have power to reduce reason to impassioned positions that never shifts, that stop all dialogue. You know what I mean? These are like red flag words. You, you just can't 
reason or dialogue anymore when such words come out. You know, in this passage, it's interesting what makes Jesus mad. He says, Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill, but they remained silent. He looked around them in anger. Do you see what makes him mad? He is not mad because they care about Sabbath. He is mad about their refusal to engage in dialogue. Their refusal to reason it out. They have taken their position. It will never shift. They do not want to engage in dialogue. Because it is an absolute value they support. They are standing up for the Bible. They are standing up for faith. They are standing up for God. They are trying to protect their country. So that, you know, God won't punish them again. What need is there for them to think about anything else? What is one man's healing set against such absolute principles and values? Right? So they want reason. At this point, their reason will always justify their conclusions. You know, they will use every argument there is to fortify what they have already come to believe. And it's not just religion that does this. This kind of thing is happening today perhaps more than ever because the internet makes it easy for us to just stay in our bubble and only listen to arguments that make us feel better about our positions. Right? We all do this. Now, I want to make this clear. I'm not trying to take a political side against Republican or Democrat. I'm trying to talk about what makes our reason rigid and flawed. Is that clear? So look, here's what my friends say about abortion. It's murder. Republicans and Christians say it's murdering babies. So they say we are standing up. We're pro-life. We're standing up for life. Democrats say it's an issue of freedom. You know, my body, my right. It's the fundamental right of freedom. Clash of two absolute values. They fight so fiercely, you would think these principles are embedded in their DNA, right? However, when you shift to other issues, positions change. There is no consistency in the principles that they have taken. Gun control, for example. Every year, about 30,000 people die from gunshot wounds in U.S. Other developed countries like Japan, death from guns is practically zero. It just doesn't happen. So, gun control would save about 30,000 lives in U.S. annually, presumably, let alone the negative environment of fear in the country because of so many people having guns. I mean, you look at all these cops pulling out guns so fast, it's because they are so afraid they are going to get shot, right? All that fear. So the Democrats say to not have sensible gun control is murder. They are standing up for life. They are pro-life. And this time, the Republicans are standing up for freedom. My gun, my right. Right? The positions are flipped. And evangelical Christians, in this case, mostly support the right to own guns. 
even though the Bible tells us to give up our rights if it will in any way benefit other people. So, it's flipped. Another issue, health care for all. Democrats, Democrats say it's a fundamental right because all other developed countries offer health care for every citizen. Um, life expectancy here in the United States is about 78 years. Life expectancy in Canada, which is just you know, not that far from here, you know, similar genetic DNA and, you know, Canada up there, it's 82 years. There's a four-year gap. To, that, to get that kind of discrepancy means millions of lives are cut short. All other things being equal, 32 million lives in the United States would have to die 40 years prematurely to get this kind of gap. And a lot of this is due to lack of access to health care. I mean, uh, you read all these articles these days, heartbreaking articles about people with uh, kidney problems, diabetes, uh, terrible lifelong conditions, just don't have access to vital drugs that they need because they don't have insurance. And their lives are suffering, and their lives are getting cut short. So Democrats say to deprive people access to health care is tantamount to killing them. Uh, I guess it's like depriving fetus of the womb, I guess. So Democrats say it's murder. They are pro-life in this case, and Republicans say it's an issue of freedom. You know, government control doesn't work. Uh, my insurance, my right, that's what they say. So you see the flip-flops, right? Arguments can be made from each side about how each issue should be seen differently, but when it comes to principles driving these arguments... There is little consistency here. There are flip-flops. So what is really going on? It's not the principle that's driving this. It flips when context changes. So what is driving these positions? I think what Obama said recently offers a big clue. Recently, he criticized the left. Not the right, the left. And he said... Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or use the wrong verb, then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself. Because, man, you see how woke I was? I called you out. I'm going to get on TV, watch my show, watch Grownish. <laughs> you know, that's not activism. That's not bringing about change. If all you're doing is casting stones, you're probably not going that far. That man, he can speak. He's pretty insightful. Especially the phrase, I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself. That really caught my eye. Why do people do these things? Well, to feel good about ourselves would be a powerful motivator to use reason to justify our pre-existing conclusions. You see, we as human beings, we have primal needs in our psyche that are deeper than reason, that drives our reason. Some of those needs are the need to feel good about myself, you know, and reinforce our sense of rightness. Um, 
Do you have a list of the needs? There you go. Reinforce our sense of rightness, righteousness. Reinforce our tribe's rightness. To belong, to be superior, to feel secure. These are primal needs. And traditionally, religion has and continues to play a big role in meeting these needs by claiming if you believe the right things or belong to the right group or be of the right race or right tribe, what have you, then you'll be saved. Then you'll be sad. You will go to heaven. You are in the right place. And that's why religion has often subverted reason and become rigid like the Pharisees in this passage. But the faith Jesus offers, it offers powerful solution to our primal needs twisting our reason. Because the cross says, we are already worthy. The cross says, you are all already accepted and worthy and valued and embraced by God in the eyes of God. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to prove anything. You don't need to be anything. You don't need to belong to any group. Not because of anything you can do or are. But because of what Christ has done on the cross. You are good with God. Amen? That is the faith that Jesus offers. So if we can really take that in, into our hearts, if we can really believe, we will be saved by faith. If we really believe we are worthy, we are secure, we are already embraced because of Christ's death on the cross, then we will become so secure in ourselves and in our value and worth that these primal needs would lose their power to drive us and subvert our reason. Such power is so difficult to have, yet so necessary. I mean, you just really won't be happy ever without such power. You'll always be driven by these needs without you becoming even aware. It will make you do weird things and sabotage yourself. It's so much easier you know, to believe and have that, that kind of faith is so much harder. It's so much easier to pile up our arguments and build up our self-justifications and our value and throw out zingers to build up ourselves. You know, this happens in personal life too, not just in political spheres. You know, many of you have taken John and Sarah's uh, relationship class, right? They've done a fabulous job. How many of you have taken that? It's good stuff, right? It's all based on um, this researcher named Gottman. And there are many, many good examples of relationships and marriages that work versus that don't work. And in one of the examples, uh, the book talks about an example of a couple fighting because the wife pays to get her car washed rather than washing it herself. And the husband is on a warpath about this. The husband is always on her case, just always uh, 
throwing out zingers and taking her down and just you know, attacking her for wasting money, right? And look, thrift is a good principle, right? Waste not, want not. That's a good principle. And usually, that's a good thing to do. But in this case, it's easy to build a case and ignore the context. The context was the wife didn't have much time between her job and household chores. And let's face it, men in the room, let's just acknowledge using our reason that women on average do twice the household chores than men do. That's just the case in America. So use your reason. You may feel like you are the exception, right? <laughs> you may feel like, no, I do more. But it is statistically very difficult <laughs> to beat the average by twice the amount. And that's just to equal, okay? So use your reason, folks. Just assume you're not doing as much, all right? That's the baseline scenario, no matter how you feel, okay? Agreed? No, there's no agreement. <laughs> That's a case of the reason getting subverted right there, okay? I'm giving you a real-life example right now, okay? Got it? It's so much easier to just think about all these, like, you know, last week I did more. Maybe you did last week, but, you know, talking about on average, okay? You got to look at the whole context. You know, you, you didn't just live with your wife for one week, you know? You, you got to look at the whole years. You get the larger context. Context is so important in every situation, in every argument. It's so easy to ignore. Jesus says, in this passage, haven't you ever read in the scriptures? What David did when he and his companions were hungry, he went into the house of God during the days when Abiathar was high priest and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. He is saying, yes, Sabbath is very important, but consider the context. David was running for his life because King Saul was after him. He was in absolute need for his life. Consider the context. He's saying God is not some Gestapo Nazi, you know, enforcing the letter of the law. God looks at the heart. God looks at the context. God looks at the big picture. So my first practical suggestion today to use reason well is to try to see the context. Try to see the bigger picture. And within that bigger picture, try to see the other points of view. Don't just demonize them. Don't just throw out zingers and build up your positions. That's very easy to do. No matter how strong you think your arguments are, no matter how strong your principles are, no matter how strong you think you're right, don't trust your reason too much. Please be aware that there are deeper primal needs like self-worth, like security, 
like fear, like belonging, that drives your reason. Be suspicious of your reason. Because it's always going to lose out to deeper primal needs. They are what's driving your reason. Know that. Be aware of that. That they blind us, make us dig in our heels. So try to see the bigger context that includes other points of view. And faith can help you do that. Meet your primal needs with faith. Not with these other things. Be secure through faith in the cross. That leads me to my second suggestion. Be open to being wrong. That's a real treasure faith can give us. Faith can really open you up to being wrong. Because being wrong is is not the end of the world anymore. It's okay if you don't believe all the right things. It's okay because Christ has died on the cross to pay for all our problems. Do we believe this? Then you can be wrong, yes? It's okay to be wrong. That's, the stakes are much lower for us. Heaven and hell, it's already taken care of. God is already on our side. We're good. Amen? So we can just dial it all down. You know? It's not like we're going to go to hell if you're wrong. Look, that's, that's part of the, the original sin. As soon as Adam ate of the uh, fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, he becomes unable to be in the wrong. Remember, he says, the woman you put here with me, she caused all the trouble. He puts the blame everywhere but himself. You know, the woman, she is wrong. And in fact, God, you're wrong for putting her here with me. I mean, what were you thinking? You know, you idiot. Right? He's calling God idiot, really. (laughs) Because he is unable to be in the wrong. Do you see that? I mean, when you use reason to think about what he said, you think, are you out of your mind to question God like that? Uh, But it's the primal need driving him, right? He is unable to see himself to be in the wrong because stakes are too high. And this happens here with us too, right? We, we put the blame everywhere else. God, the world, the people around us. But with faith, we can be in the wrong. So what? doesn't really matter. What matters is love. Not being in the right. If you know everything under heaven... It's an empty gong if you have no love. Love is what matters. So many people use religion to justify their rightness, their superiority, how we are saved in a corrupt world. Stay away from that. Because true faith in Jesus frees us from all that. Have some humility and flexibility. And don't talk too much. The kids are here. So I got to wrap this up. My final suggestion is try saying I don't know as often as possible. This goes along with I could be wrong. Look, we're just human beings. Have some humility. You know, you don't see every side. 
of these issues that feel so important. I mean, yes, we need to come to our positions, and yes, we need to have our convictions, but have humility even as you have convictions. Faith can give us the power and security to not know everything. Opens us up to wonder and mystery. So we can be more open to multiple sides to every story. To be a Christian is to say no to self-justifications. And to say yes to justification by the cross. So it can open us up. When we come to our positions, consider different points of view. Look at the context and be open to being wrong and have your convictions with all that in mind. Then you will be able to use reason well and I believe it is faith in Christ and his death on the cross that enables us to do that. I really know of nothing else because everything else is about being right or knowing right to be right. This is the only faith I know that gives us this kind of security that just already exists. Amen? God loves you. God values you. You are worthy. Let's live out of such faith and we can be a light in this world that feels so divided. And let's pray. God, we ask that you would bring your Holy Spirit to us even now and speak to our hearts of your love for us and how we are secure in the love of Christ in the cross. Help us to live out our lives in such love. And everything we say, everything we do would come out of security and love that comes from the cross. And help us to be a shining light in this world that seems so divided. Help us to be a voice for love and reason. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.